please have 1 John 4 open in front of you, and in particular verse 12. And uh, we're looking this morning, loving others and assurance. And really the main point for you to grasp, consider this morning, is this. That believers are to love one another, and to love one another with uh, spiritual love, a love which is given by God. And when we love like that, it confirms new life in the Lord and the fact that God dwells in us. And so that is an evidence which should help us as to whether we know whether we're in the Lord or not. You see, loving the brethren, other believers, is a vital mark of being a true follower of Jesus. That's something that we've seen and something that we know that John has been emphasizing in this wonderful letter. And in this passage, as we've seen over the past few weeks, he has defined true love in terms of God. Uh, through a Trinitarian perspective. And the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, explains God to be a relational being. Father, Son, Holy Spirit from eternity past, enjoying the fullness of interpersonal relationships. They've always gloried in that infinite closeness that they share. And we saw how John explains that God's character demonstrates and shows this love because God is love. John says love is from God, that God is life, that God is light, but God is love. It is his essence. And so if a believer has the life of God in him, walks in the light of righteousness and truth, they will also have and show his love. John says everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. They've been made new. They've been given a, a new nature, partakers of that divine nature. And showing this they will reflect that love to others. And it's not just an earthly love, a, a type of emotion. It is a, a supernatural love. And that capacity comes to us to love like that when we are born again by God's grace. And then we saw that the coming of Christ also is the greatest display of what God's love looks like. And so the overwhelming emphasis of the Bible is that the love of God is to be seen finally and known truly when we gaze upon the glory and the wonder of what God has done for us and in us through the Lord Jesus. And we can only begin to fathom and appreciate the love of God in Christ. And so this perfect love has been manifested that God should have sent his only son into this sinful, broken, ruined world to the cruel shame and agony of the cross, the sinless one to be made sin for his people. That sinners like you and me can be rescued, can be delivered, can be given life. And so I need to ask you this morning, do you believe in Christ? Do you have this life in you? Have you been changed? You know, do you actually know the truth of the gospel? Do you believe it? You can know about Christ, but it's knowing him for yourself. Believing in him. That's what makes a person, a Christian, having that real relationship with Jesus Christ. Turning from sin, trusting in him, his person and his work. And then we receive, indeed, that ability to love. And that love, then, John says, is displayed in his people. And John says we reflect something of the love of God, the love in the Godhead, when we not only love God, but also love those around us. It is a really clear line of argument. And so the believer must love like this. 
but can only love like this because of God's intervention in their lives and his continuing work in them. And that's where John really continues in our text. Now, if you look at verse 12, it can seem to be a very difficult verse. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. And so this verse, it kind of comes in the midst of this argument, and for some it's difficult to get to grips with. A number of you have said how you found it difficult to see how it fits in with John's flow of teaching. Now, some commentators, if you were to read around, say that this verse is the most difficult in the entire of the letter. And the difficulty comes in knowing how to interpret and understand what John is saying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so understanding it is absolutely crucial to us. Now, friends, when we face a difficult verse like this, if we are those who love the Word and come to it, we shouldn't be afraid to ask questions of a verse like this, to grapple with it, to dwell upon it, to look for the faithful meaning. And, you know, it's not easy, but it is rewarding. And so when you come to a verse like this, you need to ask questions like, well, why has the Spirit of God led the writer to say that here? Why has he put it in that way? What is the point? How does it weave in together with what has gone before and with what comes after? Because one of the things that we must know and believe about the Bible is that it's not random. Scripture is not random. It's not just a a collection of separate statements that have been bundled together. It's not a a man-made work. It is a divine masterpiece. Woven together, consistent, the Holy Spirit-inspired word, perfect purpose. No word unhelpful or falling to the ground. And so that is why it is also vital to see the way that Scripture interprets Scripture. And so if we are serious about the word, we question, we probe, we consider, and we examine interpretations to see where the truth is and where the error is. Error interpretations were the truth and what God is saying. And so why does John suddenly say that no man has seen God in the middle of his teaching about loving one another? Now, there are some very popular interpretations which I want to mention and then to explain why we need to put them to one side. Now, firstly, there are some who argue and say, well, what John is saying is this. We love God through loving one another. So we love God through loving one another. And they look at verses 11 to 12 and they say, well, John is telling us that the only way that we can love God is by loving one another. We can't see God, but we can see each other. And so we love God by loving what we see. And they say this has to be the interpretation because John is making sure that there's no vague ideas or mysticism which was prevalent at the time. So you love God by loving what you can see around you and particularly your fellow believers. So that's one interpretation. And then you've got some who say, well, no, John's not saying that. He's saying that as our love should be like God's love and God's love has been shown in something actual... He sent his son, so our love shouldn't be sort of vague and emotional and sentimental, but it shows itself only in doing something. And so we show our love for God through our works to those around us. Now, in both of those interpretations, you can follow the logic of the arguments. 
but they're not really what John is saying. So what does this verse mean? Well, if you just look a little bit further on to verses 19 and uh, through to 21, it will help us. It says, we love him because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Now, this is really important. So how do we understand this? Well, John says that we love God first. That's the emphasis. We love God because he first loved us. God has brought this love to us, set his love upon us. This love has been poured out in our hearts. We love him first. And John is not saying that we love God by going through someone or someone else first. We love God and then everything else is an outworking of that. That's the emphasis. And John is telling us to love God and that as those born again, that work of grace in our lives, we can love him and we should love him first and foremost. You know, that order is so important. Do you remember what the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 22? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Never lose sight of that order. Those other interpretations do. They put other things in place first. No, we love God first. Loving our neighbor is the outworking of our love for God. We must never put the love of our neighbor before our love of God himself. And no doubt you'll see how this has implications on what our priorities should be. We should love our brethren, of course we should, but only as an outworking of that devotion that we have for God, the God who has loved us and saved us. And you say, well, okay, I see that, but how does that then tie in? What is he saying? Well, the truth that John is led to introduce here enriches what has already been put in place. It is an additional theme to add depth to the wider teaching of how we need to love the brethren. And so what is the theme that John introduces in verse 12? Well, it is assurance. How you can know that you know God. That's the, the whole reason why he's writing. That the believer can know that they're saved and belong to the Lord and that they are held for time and eternity. And so in this text, he's actually going back to some of those big questions of how can I know God? How can I be sure I know God? And so he's dealing with this matter of assurance. If you just look back to the end of verse 8, he says, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And then this verse following on from verses 9 to 11, that marvelous description and outworking of the truth that God is love. And then he brings in, you can be sure about this. So the whole section has as the main theme how we should love the brethren and why. And he was saying, you know, he was dealing with many problems in the churches. There'd been much trouble. There'd been lots of splits and divisions. And so John is emphasizing what true fellowship looks like. And dealing with this, John has shown that we must love the brethren because God is love. It's his character. It's his essence. When we love, we're like him. He also says that if we're truly born again, we must love because it shows that we have experienced this love. It's been poured out upon us, shown to us in the person and work of Jesus. And if we've been loved like that, we need to love others. 
And then here, John is saying in addition to this, it is essential to love the brethren because it confirms God's work in us. It gives us that certainty, that assurance of salvation. And John wants the believer, he wants you this morning, if you're a believer, to know that even in pursuing loving God and loving the brethren, one of the side effects, the outworkings of that is assurance. You know, it is obvious that, you know, loving the family of believers, loving our brothers is so important to our assurance and the whole realm of knowing God, the God who is love. And so actually there's a great flow in this passage and it has these great themes and truths circulating and coming together to create a, a wonderful balance. Now, unlike my wife and children, I can't read music. But I do have an ear for music, and I enjoy listening to different types of music, and on occasion, classical music. Now, to help you understand what is happening in this passage, one preacher said that we should consider it like a symphony. Now, in a symphony, you have different movements in the music. So there are big movements, major movements, and then there are minor movements. And all these parts work together to create a, a beautiful harmony, a beautiful piece. You know, I can remember one of our music teachers when I was in secondary school getting excited about this and jumping on chairs and different things like that. At the time, I wasn't very interested, but it's helpful now. And so the composer produces this grand movement, and then as they develop the piece, different parts present themselves and flow into it. And that's what we've got in this chapter. You've got the big themes, and then you've got the minor themes which come into our hands. So in the Symphony of 1 John at this point, the major theme is loving the brethren. That's the, the big overarching truth. And then you get these minor movements, all important and adding depth. We love the brethren because it's of God. Because we're born of God, we must love the brethren. And our assurance that we know God is strengthened as we love the brethren. So it comes in to strengthen. And that's what is happening in 1 John. He begins the epistle by saying, you know, about knowing fellowship with God, knowing God, his desire that we uh, move into that fellowship. And as he develops the theme, he says, if we want to know that we have that fellowship with God, we have to love the brethren as a mark of what God is doing in our lives. And so he asks the question, well, how can we be sure that we know God? You know, it's... Very interesting that I was thinking through this verse, John 14 came to mind. And Jesus tells the disciples on that occasion, he says that he's going to leave them. And he's going to his father and he's going to go and prepare a place for them, many mansions, and that they shouldn't let their hearts be troubled. But in that moment, the whole world of those disciples was being turned upside down. They're in turmoil. You see, they've been with Jesus. He'd been there physically. He'd been with them. And now he was going and all these things were taking place and Jesus had promised another comforter, but that didn't really seem to help at this point. So in John 14, what do they ask for? Well, they look for some assurance that all is going to be well. And so they ask a question, if we could only see the Father, if we could only see the Father, if we could see, then that would be enough for us. And then we'd be sure well, the Lord Jesus makes that wonderful statement, doesn't he? He that has seen me has seen the Father. 
but we can sympathize with the disciples. We can, in a measure, understand something of how they felt, and maybe we've longed for some significant token of assurance in our lives to, to know that we're the Lord's. You know, it's the desire in that hymn that we just sung, Tell me thou art mine, O Saviour, grant me an assurance clear. We, we long for that. Our hearts want that certainty. We live, don't we, in a world of, of uncertainty and change and decay. Nothing seems to last and nothing seems steadfast. Everything that can be shaken is being shaken. And all of life is faced with this and we feel it and then you've got the matters of eternity and we want to be sure. And that's the question that John presents. And he gives us some answers in this verse. How can he be sure? And John loves in his way of writing under the inspiration of the Spirit to begin with a negative. And that's what we see here. Why? Because he wants to stop believers like you and me from going down an unhelpful path. He wants us to be clear, for the believer, our assurance is not based on external visions. He says, no man has seen God at any time. And so he's saying, don't get pulled into those who would encourage you to pursue literal visions of God. And in this negative statement, John is restating something that appears throughout the scriptures. John 1.18, no man has seen God at any time. 1 Timothy 6, God who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. This is a theme which mustn't be neglected. And the Old Testament deals with it too, maybe more so. In the Old Testament, there are these events which the proper term for them is called theophanies. They're divine appearances to certain people. So you have phrases like the angel of the Lord appearing to men like Abraham and Lot and Jacob. Now, it seems evident that these appearances were the Lord Jesus before his incarnation. And he appeared for specific purposes, and they're not a challenge to that statement that no man has seen God at any time. Some might say, well, what about Moses? In Exodus 33, I will pass by you, says the Lord, I will appear to you. But don't forget that Moses was only allowed to see the glory after God had passed by. Moses didn't see the face of God. So John's statement stands. And as I mentioned, how did Jesus respond to Philip's request in John 14 to see the Father? He that has seen me has seen the Father. And so in looking upon Jesus, the Son of God, fully God, fully man, they had been given to see the character of God, but they didn't see the Father directly. As one explains, is that the Father? No, that is the Son. But the, the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father, and the only way in which we can see the Father is to see the Son. In other words, we must hold to the basic idea that no man has seen God at any time. And so John gives us this warning, don't entertain teaching or ideas that promise you direct visions of God. Think of the promise found in the Beatitudes in the future. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. One day we'll be in the presence of God if we're his. And we know for certain we'll see the Lord Jesus face to face. But we must beware looking for confirmation of our salvation in external visions. You know, there were many mystics in John's day. You need to understand this. And they promised visions. They promised ecstatic experience, trance-like experiences. 
And today, many are looking for some such experience to assure them of God, but it doesn't last. And there are so many promises of the spectacular that Paul's words just seem so ordinary. We walk by faith, not by sight. One explains the approach of the mystics at the time when John was writing, and maybe you'll feel some similarities with some of the things today. They wanted to see and hear. They wanted something tangible. And so they fasted and they passed through rites. They had the appropriate music and they brought in the artistic and the performance. Everything was being done to get some vision, this directness, this immediacy. And the result was they became victims of aberrations, of heresies, hallucinations. In addition to that, they lost the fundamental understanding of the utter inscrutability of God because of his utter holiness. And John's concern is to warn this people, your assurance isn't based on visions and audible voices. It is based on something far greater, something far stronger. You say, well, how can I know? Well, verse 9 to 11 again. I know that God is love, and I know that he has manifested this love in the Lord Jesus, and so I don't need a vision because I have him. I have the facts of the Savior. His reality is life. I have something concrete there in the realm of history, the cross, God manifesting himself in love, Jesus coming, the objective truth. And I believe it, and I rest upon it, and I know it to be true. But then he goes on to say something even more profound in addition to it. He says, believer, God dwells in you. God dwells in you. That's the second ground of my assurance, my certainty. No man has seen God. What do I do? Do I despair and wonder if he's real? No. John says that we believe the truth, we rest upon the truth, and then he says if we love one another, God dwells in us. I wonder if you understand how wonderful that is. If you're a believer, God dwells in you. You know, it is a remarkable thing. And John goes on to expand, verses 13 to 15. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son, a Savior of the world, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. You know, we just have to fall in wonder before this great and gracious God. We are talking of God dwelling in us, in the believer, in you and me. And if we love one another, we show that. God the Almighty, the Sovereign, the Eternal. Now, of course, we have to handle it with care. And there are those who try to materialize this. And we must never think of it in material terms. God is spirit and he dwells in us. You know, you think on your soul. You know, your eternal soul. It's not an organ, it's not a limb, it's not something material, it's a spiritual reality. And at death, my soul will leave my body until that final consummation and glorification and the, the new body that God has promised. But I have a soul. And as a believer, God who is spirit dwells in us. He takes up his abode and he lives in us. Now, it's not the, you know, that the eternal God has become resident in us in a, a bizarre sense. 
It is that God, the eternal God who is spirit, comes into my life. And he is at work in my life. And he moves in my life. And he directs my life. And he shows himself at work in my life. You know, it's a, a weighty matter to think through. And we, we struggle to fully comprehend it whilst in this world. But when we're born again, the life of God, God dwells in us. And he changes us and he works in us. And so John is saying something that seems difficult, but actually is very straightforward. He's saying, don't look for your assurance. In externals and signs and visions where something eerie seems to be happening, John says, you've got something greater than that. God lives in you. God dwells in you. And when you love your brothers and sisters, you are showing the reality of God's presence in your life. You say, well, how? Well, if I love the brethren, I'm assured of God because the very fact that I'm capable of loving them, that I love them, is proof that God is, that God is love, and that he's at work in me. And without his indwelling, I couldn't love them. Without his work, I couldn't love them. By our fallen nature, as we've seen, we do not love. In chapter 3, John gives the example of Cain and how he represents how we are in our natural state. We hate, we strive, we look after self. We don't love selflessly. That's the world. And the world hates the believer. And by nature, that's how we are. And so when I love a person who is unlovely, when I pray for someone who has been persecuting me, has dealt with me in a bad way, when I extend help to one who has hurt me, when I find myself quick to forgive, when I do these things, I know that God is dwelling in me. He's working in me and moving in me and showing his love through me because if he wasn't, I wouldn't do those things because it's not my nature to do them. And so how, how do I know God is real, that God loves me, that he's loved? Love one another. God dwells in us. It's not mystical. It is the outworking of God in my life. And John doesn't end there. He goes on to say that this love will be perfected in us. It's a great statement. Why did God send his son into this world to die for us? To save us and so that we might give him glory and love the brethren in a manner that reflects him. In other words, to make a people for himself, one that reflects his character, one that is made like the Lord Jesus. God didn't just send Jesus to save us and so that our sins could be forgiven. That alone is marvelous. We would be lost without it. You're lost without it if you don't trust in Jesus. But God redeems us to change us and conform us and make us the people he wants us to be to perfect his love in us from within. And when we love the brethren, we show that divine work in our lives that he is making us to be like his son. And we look to that day when one day we shall be made truly like him. And we shall see him as he is. Do you remember what the Lord Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount? Didn't he describe that reality? He said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. 
For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. You see, he's describing a way of loving and a way of life that is impossible for us outside of him. You can't live like that in your own strength. You need God's work in you. You need his dwelling in you. You need that relationship with Christ. And that's the way the believer is to love. God's love is perfected in us. And so when we live like that, we are moving towards the fulfillment of God's purpose for us in all that he has done for us in the Lord Jesus, making us a people for himself, for his glory, a peculiar people, a holy nation, men and women who by his grace are unable to love. So that's what John is saying. If these marks are there in your life, rejoice because God is at work. And so he brings this theme of assurance that certainty of God's work And one of the ways to make sure is to love the brethren. And if I'm loving the brethren, I know that God must be in me because otherwise I couldn't do it. And I'm demonstrating his work. Friends, I want to encourage you. For the next couple of weeks, you know that I am away from you and you know that I always miss you when I go away. Privileged to uh, serve here, you know that. But I wanted you to know that I really do delight in what God is doing amongst you. And even though you might not always see it and realize it, God is at work in you in this very area of loving one another. And your warmth and your care and that which you show, it does overwhelm me at times. And I thank God for that and pray that it would increase. And I pray that ultimately, that in it, as we seek to live like that, the Lord Jesus would be front and center and that people would see that it's, It's him. It's all of him, these things. And that he is central in all that we are and in all that we do, both as individuals and as a church. So may God help us. May he help us to be the people and the fellowship that he wants us to be and to give him all the glory for this incredible work. And I pray that you would know this morning that this saviour is yours and the evidence of that is seen in the way that you love and love beyond any natural capability, but supernatural love given by God. Amen.